0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce this morning's talk, The Queen's Influence, Henrietta Maria and the Art at the Stuart Court, which is part of our Charles I exhibition programme and in which we will be highlighting the role of Queen Henrietta Maria, wife of Charles I, on his collection and giving an overview of her patronage, taste and networks. Um, I'm sure that you know that the exhibition closes uh, next week and I suspect you've probably all been to see it but if you haven't I would highly recommend it. Um, Our speaker this afternoon is Dr Erin Griffey who actually landed in from New Zealand yesterday. Um, Erin is Associate Professor at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and a specialist in early modern court culture especially patronage Material Culture and Portraiture at the Stuart Court. She is the author of On Display, Henrietta Maria and Materials of Magnificence at the Stuart Court and regularly gives talks on Henrietta Maria's life, patronage and palaces, including at Hampton Court and the Queen's House in Greenwich, Oxford. I would also like to welcome Stephen Hudson, who is the British Sign Language Interpreter for this event. Um, But without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr Erin Griffey. Thank you.
1: Thank you. The story of Stuart Art has long been the story of Charles I. There are many good reasons why the king was important in this respect, as the literature and this magnificent exhibition have well demonstrated. Charles was known by his contemporaries for his buon naso, his good nose for pictures and he acquired the hugely important Mantuan collection, several of whose showpieces are in the exhibition. However, generations of scholars have downplayed the influence of his queen consort, Henrietta Maria, and her importance as a cultural agent at the Stuart Court. This is partly a vestige of the deep anxiety around the queen as an historical figure. The critique of Henrietta Maria whether it is criticism of her meddling in politics, her overzealous Catholic piety, her lavish overspending, and even her inescapable Frenchness, has persisted since the marriage negotiations that saw her promised to a Protestant English king, and it continued well into the 20th century. For her part, she was given an impossible mission by her guilt-inducing, heavy-handed mother, her ambitious brother, and her godfather, the Pope Urban VIII. They wanted her to not just protect English Catholics and raise her children as Catholics, but in fact, to convert the king. This mission hung over the queen throughout the rest of her life, with promising periods such as the Halcyon years of the mid-1630s, and the very dark days of the early 1640s, which saw the growing political tensions which would result in civil war. It was only at her death in 1669, with the Treaty of Dover being negotiated, that her dreams of a Catholic England seemed to be imminent. And if it did not come to fruition with her eldest son, it would with her second, James II. (coughs) Henrietta Maria's active role in the English Civil Wars, which saw her giving her husband endless pep talks and strategizing, speaks to a certain personality that is assertive, opinionated, and as we shall see, certainly in the case of art, a strong sense of entitlement to a certain social standing, dignity, and magnificence. As she saw it, just as her husband needed political and military direction during the Civil Wars, art too needed her direction. Growing up at the Bourbon Court in France, Henrietta Maria was surrounded by three things that would be hugely influential to her time in England. A dominant mother that was widowed when Henrietta Maria was just a baby, a strong sense of religious obligation and piety, and a sophisticated court that saw real value in magnificent display. She was raised to see the essential role of artworks within the context of both the mass and private devotions and to understand the importance of votive offerings to churches. She would fulfill the role to the church honorably. She would found a convent at Shiloh in 1651 and over the course of her life, offer a range of religious patronage and charitable acts. As we shall see, devotional artworks were a mainstay of not just her chapels, but her galleries and her private apartments. So Henrietta Maria brought a sophisticated understanding of what a magnificent court should look like and how pictures, buildings, and other objects would contribute to that. Like Charles I, she directed art and architectural commissions. She too was gifted pictures tailored to her tastes, and she too helped to determine the display of pictures in her palaces. We must remember that these were not solely the king's palaces. And however polarizing Henrietta Maria was as a French Catholic, however young and naive at her arrival. And even if she was not steeped in classical learning, she had a strong sense of taste and a strong sense of purpose, and art was an essential part of this. Yet the notion that the queen had her own pictures, commissioned her own artworks, and oversaw her own display has only recently been considered by scholars. This can be attributed to Charles's reputation as a connoisseur, but also to scholarly bias and a very restricted view of what constitutes patronage. For, as I have previously argued, we risk misunderstanding patronage if we only accept it as a direct financial arrangement. In many cases, elite women relied on their husband to finance the works they had commissioned. Henrietta Maria is regularly said to have, quote, directed artists and architects. She did not, however, operate financially independently from the king. And we'll see that the king financed um, the bulk of the artworks that she ordered. But we'll also see they shared many of the same artists. What we will see here at work is quite a complex case of what has been called joint patronage. So my talk today will provide an overview then of the nature and range of evidence of Henrietta Maria's taste, patronage, and display of pictures at the court of Charles I. It will consider this concept of joint patronage and highlight her close relationships with a number of artists. I'll also discuss her acts of mediation for acquiring works for the court, her ordering and gifting of portraits, and her palace display. While she may not have been a connoisseur in the same sense as the king, we will see she had very sophisticated taste. We will also see she seems to have had a preference for Italian pictures. Her taste seems to have been governed by a strong sense of what was suitable for a catholic queen chiefly devotional pictures and family portraits when henrietta maria left the french court in 1625 aged just 15 rubens's magnificent series for her mother's luxembourg palace had just been unveiled in fact rubens's cycle of paintings for marie de medici was actually unveiled for her wedding reception. Marie de' Medici had also brought Orazio Gentileschi from Rome to work on the same palace. So what I'm trying to contextualize here is Paris in 1625 when the young princess leaves. Recent works and very important works by Rubens for her mother and Orazio is based at court working for her mother at the same time. The young Henrietta Maria had sat to portraits by Franz Porbus the Younger and Daniel de Montstier. And this is this really exquisite drawing that you just saw by the French court artist Daniel de Montstier. The relationship between art and magnificence was made then patently clear to her by her mother. Her mother showed her that being a woman did not bar her from being a suitable subject and patron. As part of her wedding trousseau, gifted by her brother, King Louis XIII, she brought several unnamed pictures for her chapel at St. James's. And indeed, um, one of the conditions of of the marriage was that she needed to have suitable places for her worship at all of the palaces. But the chapel that was intended to be the main chapel when she arrived was at St. James's. These pictures must have been devotional and selected to facilitate her devotions in this new home And the French called England, and I think this is quite a fun or an interesting quote, they called England a land of heretics. It has not, at least to my knowledge, previously been pointed out that 1625, the year of the marriage, was a jubilee year. And Pope Urban VIII naturally attached great significance to this and gave the queen a rare golden rose it all must have portended very well for the papacy. For her very early years in England, there is ample evidence of lavish spending on fashionable clothing and public showcasing of her Catholic devotion. We know little about any early artistic commissions related to the queen until a few years later. But we do know that the year she arrived, a local painter, well, he was a German painter called Francis Klein, but based at the English court. The year she arrived, he painted a massive crucifixion um, as an altarpiece for her chapel at St. James's. Now, the crucifixion is a very strongly Catholic subject. The same year, 1625, again, we remember this is a Jubilee year, the king gifted her a nativity in an ornate. Triptych. There is nothing like this in any of the Stuart inventories that is recorded But it may perhaps have been comparable to this one that survives in the Metropolitan This subject the nativity had a special secondary meaning for the king's young wife since it foregrounded the importance of having children So this is an interesting case in which the king gifted the queen a picture suitable for her specifically Catholic devotions. It speaks then of an acceptance on the king's part of the queen's religion and the important role of religious pictures for her. Her taste for pictures and orders for them was certainly not limited to religious works. In 1628, the court painter Daniel Mitens painted three portraits of her with her dwarf, Geoffrey Hudson. So this is 1628, she's 18 years old, still hasn't had any children. And so she orders these portraits um, of her with her dwarf to send to relatives overseas. Now the king paid for these portraits, but it it is interesting that none of these portraits in 1628 stayed at court. The queen handpicked the recipients. This seems to be the first evidence of what has been called joint or conjugal patronage in the case of king and queen. In practice, such joint patronage operated in a number of different scenarios. In the the most straightforward sense, the king and queen shared many of the same artists. When Van Dyck was knighted on the 5th of July, 1632, He was recorded not solely as the king's painter, but as principal painter in ordinary to their majesties. In this sense, Van Dyck was officially attached to king and queen, and Inigo Jones, the eminent architect at the Stuart Court, also officially attached to king and queen. This shared enterprise is borne out by accounts such as Van Dyck's bills seen here from late 1638. Here you see the painter seeking payment from the king for some pictures and the king for others. Do you see the, the light blue arrow at the top left? Do you see these, these crosses here? Those crosses relate to pictures that the queen was expected to pay for. So the queen was expected to pay for these And not only that, when you got a bill from an artist or a tradesman at this time, if you were the patron, you decided how much you wanted to pay them. And usually you would pay substantially less. And um, do you see here that the king or one of his scribes, for this picture, the queen by Mr. Bernino. This is the queen for Bernini. And Van Dyke has asked for 20 pounds, but it has been decided by Charles I that he'll pay Van Dyke instead 15 pounds. Now, her part of the bill seems to have been ultimately settled by the king. However, this arrangement suggests that the queen commissioned pictures from Van Dyke directly. Thus, it might happen that the queen might order a picture, but the king pay for it. She ordered pictures of her children and sent them to relatives abroad, as was the case of this exquisite portrait, and I would say, too, one of Van Dyck's finest portraits, um, royal portraits produced at the Stuart Court. And he produced this, Van Dyck produced this, for Henrietta Maria's older sister, Christina, who was in Savoy. The king does not seem to have been involved in any decision around what this portrait would look like. We know this because the king complained after the picture was painted about the portrayal of the children. He was unhappy that Charles was still still shown in his skirts. And this is Charles, oh see I've done it again. This is Charles here on the left and you can see he's still in his skirts. He's not shown in breeches yet. And Charles seems to have also been unhappy that the other children have not been shown with the protective aprons that they were meant to wear on top of their very fine silk garments. In other instances, though less frequently, the queen would order an artwork and pay the artist herself. And there are very interesting cases where she does this for Jan van Belkamp and Hubert Le Sueur. We know, too, Henrietta Maria paid Inigo Jones and Christopher Wren directly. Um, She paid retaining fees, modest pensions, for both of them. She also paid Jones directly for works on her palaces at Oatlands, Wimbledon, and the Queen's house at Greenwich. One particularly revealing example of the Queen's direct relationship with artists is a notation in her own hand on the 1632 payment to Jan van Belkamp. This was for 40 pounds for three pictures were, and I quote, she says this in her own hand, the pictures are by our direction and for our use, end quote. Moreover, Henrietta Maria made suggestions and engaged directly with artists and had a sense of what she liked and ultimately felt a sense of ownership of these goods and spaces. There are even incidents recorded of the queen giving away pictures in the collection. The king's surveyor, van der Dort, records four paintings from Whitehall. This was the king's palace, this wasn't the queen's palace. Four paintings which the queen, and this is in van der Dort, sort of broken Dutch. The queen disposed of four paintings to ladies at court. As I indicated earlier, these pictures were not all seen as the exclusive property of the king, and these were not solely his palaces. She received a number of palaces as part of her jointure, that is, the financial conditions of her marriage contract. She acquired Somerset House, Greenwich, Oatlands, Nonsuch. Richmond, and Holdenby. She'd acquired all of those palaces by 1630, so within five years. And then in 1639, she acquired Wimbledon, and Wimbledon very much preoccupied her from late 1639. Wimbledon would have been amazing. Jones, who was called in her accounts, her majesty's surveyor of her building, end quote, was paid directly for building work at Wimbledon. And he was also paid for work at Oatlands and the Queen's House. I think one thing that's particularly distinctive about the Queen's House is how much money she paid Jones for the Queen's House, 9,000 pounds, which is really an astonishing sum. So she was really funding all of the building works in the 1630s for the Queen's House. And while Charles I funded the remodeling of Somerset House in the 1630s and the building of a new chapel there, it was the queen's treasurer who oversaw all of the expenses. Again, to me, this is very interesting. Um, The king is financing it, but the queen's treasurer is basically approving everything related to the chapel. She approached the decoration of her palaces with great enthusiasm. And this decoration included decorative painting, furniture, pictures, tapestries, and you you all must go see the magnificent Mortlake tapestries in the exhibition, Um, as well as the larger panorama of interior decoration. And that included furnishing textiles, carpets, and decorative flourishes all down to flowers especially strewn on the floor. So I want you to imagine, and you you don't get a sense of this in the the exhibition, you get the sense of walls being very busy with the color and movement of figures, but you don't get that sense of layering, which you would find in an actual interior, pictures on top of tapestries, pictures on top of fabrics and walls, um, Persian carpets, turkey carpets on the floor, chandeliers, all beds were fully encompassed by hangings. These were very, very rich interiors. And to me, there's, it's so um, evocative to think of the olfactory element of these interiors as well, that she paid a woman to, um, to throw flowers on the floor. So you can imagine as you stepped through these interiors and it was usually roses, Um, You can imagine what it would smell like. It would really smell um, quite exquisite. Her accounts show that she spent extravagantly on all these aspects of her interiors. They were exquisitely decorated, and often with furniture in the French style. And it's interesting, particularly at the Queen's House, um, well, at Somerset House, you find a lot of furniture in the French style. But at the Queen's House, which you see here, And at Wimbledon, there's a lot of furniture in the Italian style. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but I certainly think it's interesting that in the second half of the 1630s, her taste very much moves um, to the Italianate. And this coincides, of course, with papal envoys from Rome being in London. Henrietta Maria also had chapels to decorate. From around 1634, there was a much greater boldness to her Catholicism. This coincided with the arrival of papal agents at court and the opening of her magnificent chapel at Somerset House, this chapel designed by Inigo Jones. For the altarpiece, Charles I, and I'm quoting here, bestowed on Henrietta Maria a Rubens crucifixion. Now, the Rubens crucifixion doesn't survive, but this is perhaps somewhat similar to what would have been there. This gifting of a devotional picture is comparable, I think, to his gifting of the nativity 10 years prior. But the religious landscape had changed markedly in the ensuing years. At the December 1636 first mass at her chapel, the queen cried. This was quite a dramatic break from royal protocol, but very much in line with saintly devotion. And the way I read this, too, is she was providing the kind of visual, emotional optics to be reported back to Rome. The theatrical, emotionally resonant aspects of Catholicism were played up in the decoration inside. We had a crucifixion as the altarpiece, And the Eucharistic host was held, and it's hard to even fathom this in terms of scale, a 12-meter-high monstrance um, on the altar. So absolutely massive. And it was designed by um, a French sculptor, Francois Dussart, um, who had spent a lot of time in Rome. The monstrance, if you can try to picture this, because it doesn't survive. The monstrance was hidden behind curtains, which were revealed at the height of the mass to reveal the Eucharistic host. And then positioned behind the monstrance was a choir. So the idea was when the monstrance was unveiled, it would appear as if a choir of angels was singing and the sound was emanating from the communion host itself. To add further to the kind of theater of this chapel, there were, again, the scale just blows my mind, 400 votive candles surrounding the monstrance as well. The masses, as you can imagine, were very well attended, both by Catholics and Protestants. This example reveals the strongly Catholic influence of the Queen at the Stuart Court. It also highlights the visual and material splendor of the whole theater of the artworks in her chapels this would inevitably have had close associations with Rome and the papacy. That the king gifted her the altarpiece suggests that the king may have shared in this aesthetic or at least supported it. It's worth underscoring here too the talent marshaled on the queen's Catholic chapel. The architect, Jones. The altarpiece, Rubens. The monstrance which held the sacred host by a sculptor who had been active in Rome and worked in a strongly Italianate manner. For Protestants, such imagery within the context of the mass was wholly unacceptable. A crucifixion was a particularly Catholic image since it showcased the body of Christ and highlighted the Catholic belief that the communion host was, in fact, the body of Christ and not a mere symbol of it. Rubens' altarpiece was the subject of focused, violent attack during the Civil War. And there's an account of parliamentarians who came in to destroy the religious artworks in the chapel, and they describe attacking it with a halberd, and they use the word scourge. They scourged it, um, and they threw it into the Thames. So attacking the picture became a way of attacking the Catholic queen, whose religion had caused such suspicion and hostility. Moreover, Henrietta Maria's direct line to the papacy was particularly visible from 1634 with the arrival of the first papal envoy. It was particularly visible in that chapel with that 12-meter-tall monstrance. This connection to the papacy could also prove to be quite handy in securing commissions. It is unlikely, for example, that Bernini's bust of Charles I would have ever happened without her intervention. The queen sought a bust of herself, too, by Bernini, which did not eventuate. But preparatory studies by Van Dyck, including this, exquisite portrait of her, were made as preparatory studies for Bernini. Remember the the bill from Van Dyke where the king is paying for the pictures for Bernini and he talks um, Van Dyke down from 20 pounds to 15 pounds? That's for one of these portraits. Can you imagine? 15 pounds. The papal court also sent to her Britannic majesty a treasure trove of Italian Renaissance and Baroque pictures in 1636. The pictures included paintings by, these were all gifts of the papacy, Leonardo da Vinci, Pietro da Cortona, Correggio, Veronese, Giulio Romano, Andrea del Sarto. And I think it's really illuminating that these were all unpacked in her bedchamber. And she was convalescing after giving birth to her second daughter, Elizabeth. So everyone was hauled in to unpack these amazing treasures from Rome. And the people who came in to investigate these pictures included the king, Jones, and Arundel, and of course, the queen. Moreover, the connection between the king and papacy at this critical juncture, when they were hoping to convert the king, made such precious gifts of fine paintings possible. Without a Catholic consort by his side, and without the allowing of papal envoys, such gifts would have been unthinkable. Henrietta Maria also received another gift from the papacy the same year. This is 1636. And she received a painting of St. Catherine. This was delivered by the new papal agent, George Kahn, she received it so enthusiastically, she insisted to the envoy that the still unframed picture be immediately attached to the curtains of her bed. There is a compelling possibility, I think, that this picture was by Guido Rainey, possibly one of the Catherine types seen here. Cardinal Barberini would go on to broker the commission for Rainey to paint the central ceiling painting for her bedroom at the Queen's house. So I guess the point I'm making is, is I think by 1636, Cardinal Barberini in the papacy already knew that she really liked the paintings by the contemporaneous Baroque painter Guido Rainey. There are no paintings of Catherine by Rainey in any of the Stuart inventories, but there is one in the queen's post-mortem inventory at Cologne. Moreover, Henrietta Maria had a tendency to feel a sense of ownership of certain pictures from her rooms or ones gifted to her, and she would have had a very strong case for keeping a picture of her, of her saint gifted to her by the papacy. And you'll understand what I mean about her saint in just a minute. There is further evidence of the centrality of religious imagery in her bedchamber. Indeed, religious pictures would pervade her rooms throughout her life with a particular proliferation of images naturally of the Virgin and Child, the Holy Family, and Saints Mary Magdalene and Saint Catherine of Alexandria. Vander Doort records pictures that were moved to Whitehall in 1639 for another birth. So in 1639, so another birth here, this was the birth of a daughter who she named Catherine. Now unfortunately, um, Catherine died, but Vanderdort's notations reveal that a suite of six pictures were handpicked for this particular birthing bedchamber. And above all, the most common subject selected for this bedchamber was the Virgin and Child. And there were paintings there by Simon Vouet, Raphael, and Van Dyck, all of the Virgin and Child. And Orazio Gentileschi's Rest on the Flight into Egypt too, um, also hung in this room. With display centered on the Virgin and Child, the room was set for a birthing queen. They relate the queen as as a type for her namesake Mary, Maria, the royal children as divinely ordained. By naming her daughter Catherine II, this suggests a kind of saintly embodiment. And you must think too that in 1639, she was feeling particularly emboldened in her Catholicism. She was enacting a series of um, very successful conversions of of ladies and um, male courtiers at this time too. Not long after the birth of Catherine, the queen would have herself painted as Saint Catherine by Van Dyck, claiming Catherine's powers of conversion and illustrious pedigree. And I'll say too, if you've seen Fake or Fortune, um, this is the picture that featured in Faker Fortune. This was one of the sleepers that Bindor discovered which is now attributed to, to Van Dyck. This, this queen as St. Catherine was certainly the queen as the Pope and her mother wanted to see her. It is not coincidental, I think, that at the time this was painted her mother was being hosted at the English court And at the same time, too, there was also a papal envoy at court. So again, this was providing very good optics for the French court and the papacy. Coinciding with all of this was a renewed focus on the Queen's House at Greenwich. This had been begun by Anna of Denmark and was the subject of extensive works in the 1630s by Jones. It was designed as a pleasure pavilion for the hunt in the adjacent park, And it was distinctive in both its form and function from other palace buildings. The house was a focal point for commissions by Guido Rainey, Orazio Gentileschi, and Jacob Jordans. Those were all new commissions. And it was also a place where a number of sort of choice works, existing works, by Orazio Gentileschi and Giulio Romano were selected to hang. With its classicizing architecture by Jones, its great hall with its black and white stone floor, the house was suited to Italian paintings. The patronage of the queen's house offers a particularly revealing case of joint patronage, as both the queen and the king and their intermediaries were involved in determining what was suitable to the house. The initial decorative focus was on the bedchamber, closet, and cabinet, with their Jones-designed fireplaces and large expanses for pictures. By 1635, two, Orazio Gentileschi, you know, one of her favorite artists, was working on the nine ceiling paintings which would hang in the Great Hall, which were finished in 1638. That's the central painting from the hall at the Queen's house, and unfortunately these are in quite a bad state of repair. They've been removed from the Queen's house, and they've been reinstalled in um, Marlborough House. The Queen oversaw the direction of the bedchamber, the only surviving example of her interior decoration. So get to the Queen's house uh, at Greenwich so you can see one of her interiors in situ. room has been the subject of groundbreaking new research by Gordon Higgett, who has established that Edward Pierce Sr. designed the cove of the ceiling with cartouches and grotesques, symbolizing the loving union of the queen and king. And it was Henrietta Maria who handpicked, again, Guido Rainey for the central ceiling painting, Now, this commission is very interesting. It was being negotiated by 1637. And so she specifies to Cardinal Barberini in Rome that she wants a painting by Guido Reni for this bedchamber. And she asks the papal envoy to help mediate um, with the cardinal. The queen, too, is also quite specific that for this commission, she intends to pay for it. She leaves the subject to the cardinal's discretion. And what he picks is not a religious subject for the Catholic queen. He picks the mythological subject, and actually quite a sensual one, um, Bacchus and Ariadne. When it was completed in 1640, the new papal agent was very anxious that the picture would appear lascivious, and would scandalize the heretics in England. But the agent also conceded that if the queen and her confessor approved it, then we will have to let it appear that her majesty ordered everything and that I was solicitously carrying out her demands." This quote underscores the expected leeway given to the queen as a patron, even if Barberini was the main player in the commission itself. Here again, as in other instances with Inigo Jones, the Queen was given the opportunity to approve a design. The original does not survive, um, and the original painting seems never to have um, made it to England. It does appear to have found its way to France when she was in exile and um, she pawned it, but this is. An etching um, made after it. It wasn't just the subject that was problematic in 1640. It was the increasingly fraught political situation and the perception of the queen's key role in it. Understandably, the picture was never installed. And so if you go to the queen's house today, there is a different picture that was installed in the early 18th century. Another remarkable point here is that the queen approved amorous imagery in the context of the queen's house. Moreover, the space itself proclaimed it to be very much her space, as we see in the painted plaque above the chimney breast that reads here, Henrietta Maria Regina. A number of existing Italian paintings were also selected for the Queen's house. So if you go to the room that's really sort of dedicated to Henrietta Maria in the exhibition, it's exciting, you can see the three large Orazio Gentileschi paintings, which already existed, but were then all freshly framed and hung in the Queen's house. It's notable, too, that the Queen allowed Orazio to be buried under the main altar of her chapel at Somerset House when he died in February 1639. And this has always been seen as something quite remarkable by scholars, and in my mind, it must relate too to Orazio's particularly privileged position in 1639. That's to say he's just finished a lot of work for the Queen's House. In addition to the three Orazio Gentileschi paintings at the Queen's house, there was a Giulio Romano ceiling painting of Daedalus and Icarus. It is notable then, so we have Gentileschi, Rainey, and Romano at the Queen's house, and it's certainly notable to me that those three painters, their works also appear in her post-mortem inventory where she dies in Paris in 1669. So this, to me, suggests the Queen's taste for their pictures. And to me, it also seems to provide evidence that the Queen was involved in choosing works by these artists for the Queen's house. This exciting period of the Queen's direction in art and architecture, and I've concentrated on the period 1632 to 40, produced the Somerset House Chapel, the Queen's House, works by Gentileschi, Rainey, and Van Dyck, a series of strategic papal gifts and advisory roles with artists, and ambitious plans for Wimbledon. I have not had time to detail the extensive and constant refurbishment of her rooms, constant new painting, furniture, curtains. The pace was unrelenting. When the surveyor of pictures, the King's Pictures, van der Dort, produced a catalog of pictures, In 1639, none of her palaces were included. I think this is because the following year, in 1640, the queen was given her own keeper of pictures, Daniel Sereau. This is evidence of the quality and quantity of artworks in her palaces. We know very little about Sereau, and he disappears from the documents altogether in 1641, but his appointment is significant. There is every suggestion then that Henrietta Maria's directorial role in the appointment of her rooms was growing until it was impeded by the Civil War. It is possible that Vanderdort's inventory includes none of her palaces then, because these houses were seen to contain her pictures and she was waiting for Saro to inventory them. But no such inventory was ever undertaken. Over the next few years, political tensions reached breaking point. The the queen was a figure of hostility, both amongst Protestant leaders and the Protestant... um, Parliamentary leaders and the Protestant public. There was every sense that this popish plot was masterminded by the Queen and her circle. By January 1642, she left London for Holland, and she went there to take her eldest daughter to marry the Dutch Stadtholder's son. Then just two years later, she fled to exile in Paris, never to see her husband again. Her time in exile was fraught She initially focused on supporting her husband and after his execution to the restoration of her eldest son. She struggled not only with the ignominy of exile and the shame of the execution of her husband, but also financial problems in dealing with a very um, difficult political situation in France. Here in exile, she embraced a nun-like persona portrayed in her widow's weeds, and presented herself as Lorraine Mulherose, the miserable queen. When Charles was crowned in 1660, his mother was overjoyed, and she returned triumphant to the court the same year. She embraced architectural patronage, this time on a dramatic scale. Um, Oh, and I'm not quite sure why I'm showing you this. I was meant to be showing you this is the portrait of her is Lorraine in her Widow's Weeds, 1652. And now we're at the, the restoration court of, of her son, Charles II. And I was mentioning her architectural patronage. Um, to me, it is really remarkable and almost astonishing that she spends 30,000 pounds on renovating Somerset House in the 1660s. This is a staggering amount of money. Um, and to put that into perspective, in the exhibition, you've all seen the exhibition, they talk a lot about the Mantuan gift, the Mantuan gift, the Mantuan acquisition that Charles um, I acquired in 1626. He paid 26,000 pounds for that spectacular collection of artworks. Henrietta Maria spent 30,000 pounds on a renovation of one of her palaces in the 1660s, all funded through her private purse. There are tantalizing glimpses of her engagement with art at the Restoration, payments to John Hoskins, John Michael Wright, Nicholas Stone. Peeps regaled the quality of her revamped rooms. We also get a sense of the Um, spectacular furnishings and pictures in her renovated Somerset house in 1665. So the plague is ravaging London in the summer of 1665. It's a particularly virulent outbreak. And she decides she needs to go to France and she says she's only going for a year. And she brings with her an absolute treasure trove of tapestries and chandeliers and pictures And they inventory them. And this inventory is fascinating because it gives us a sense of the artworks and tapestries which were hanging at the Restoration Court. (coughs) And amongst these treasures, notable, I think, within the context of the argument I'm presenting to you today, is a Guido Rainey painting um, called uh, A Divine Love. And in the same 1665 inventory, what other painters do you think we find? Van Dyck and Orazio Gentileschi. When she died in 1660, an inventory was again taken of her goods and included the rainy picture you just saw, It included this picture, or a version of it, as well as, again, portraits by Van Dyck and works by Orazio Gentileschi Guido Rainey, Giulio Romano, all artists who go back to her patronage in the 1630s. And you may recognize um, the painting on the the far right that also features in the exhibition. And in fact, the first time we can attach that picture to the Stuarts is Henrietta Maria's post-mortem inventory. That's the first time it appears, um, this Holbein. And these other pictures also feature in her post-mortem inventory. So not everything, when she dies, had all come from Somerset House in the 1630s or her other palaces. Some seem to have been newer acquisitions. And interestingly too, um, the pictures that are inventoried, one might expect all of them to be returned to Charles II, they weren't. About half were returned to Charles II, And about another half stayed in France. And so many have entered entered the collection, the French royal collection. So certainly one thing that's interesting, um, I mean, certainly in my mind, that you find a number of these pictures being subsumed into the collection of Charles II. Many were displayed at Whitehall, as we know from an inventory of the mid-1660s. But not all of them were returned. To conclude... Thus, Henrietta Maria's influence at the Stuart Court was, I think, demonstrable. It included decisive impact on the religious and political landscape, as well as the acquisition of artworks. As I have shown, it was her Catholicism which proved so politically divisive for the king, which was instrumental in many ways for the spectacular gifts and commissions brokered through the papacy. The essential role role of images within the context of her devotions also influenced the type of artworks gifted to her by the king as well as the papacy and other courtiers. Nonetheless, the accounts that record her direct involvement with artists paints a slightly more colorful picture. We know she was thrilled to get her hands on the still-unframed picture of St. Catherine, but we also read that she was keen to get lifelike portraits of her children to send to relatives and sought a portrait bust of herself from Bernini. Her strong preference for Guido Rainey's works suggests taste that extended beyond the largely devotional scope of her public identity. Indeed, she was also gifted mythological paintings and still lives. She always kept the portraits of her children and a miniature of her husband close to her heart. While she was a deeply polarizing figure at the Stuart Court, this should not negate interest in her. Indeed, quite the opposite. She is a fascinating historical figure precisely because She was forced to negotiate such tense confessional and political issues because she was situated between France and England, between the papacy and Protestantism, between parliamentarians and the king, royal magnificence, and religious devotion. She was assertive, sophisticated, deeply loyal, and as I hope we have seen, had a keen understanding of how she needed to martial art for her own direction and use.
0: (laughs) The paintings in the Royal Collection by the female artist, Mm. Artemisia Gentileschi, were they owned by Charles or by Henrietta Maria
1: the, the whole notion of ownership is very thorny as as i've kind of alluded to. It was far more fluid than we think of today so um but one thing so. Certainly, the queen seems to have felt ownership over certain works that maybe were given to her, and she seems to have felt a particular kind of ownership with certain works that hung in her palaces of her jointure. Artemisia is interesting. She was in England, she was Orazio's daughter. The Artemisia painting of Susanna and the Elders, for example, I think it hung in one of her rooms in the king's palaces or in one of her houses, and it was a chimney piece. So there's a connection with Susanna and the elders in Henrietta Maria, but we have no, well certainly to my knowledge, someone else might, um, sense of a sense of particular relationship at all between the queen and Artemisia, but nor do we have a really um, clear sense of a relationship between the king and Artemisia. It's a really murky um, subject, but a good question.
0: Thank you. It was a very interesting story about okay. uh, uh, Henrietta Maria. Thank I just would like to ask you about uh, Queen's House, the ceiling. I thought the ceiling was painted by the uh, daughter of uh, Orazio uh, Gentileschi. So just the name appeared. I believed that was uh,
1: by her. But by Artemisia. It's yeah. Orazio Gentileschi. Yes, so this is in the main hall, so if you walk into the Queen's House, the really distinctive black and white checked floor, it's not there anymore, but that was all Orazio Gentileschi, and um, that's just the central ceiling. And this is the bedchamber, and it was Gordon Higgett who has been able to determine that um, that painting was done by Edward Pierce, senior, contemporary of Inigo Jones. that's the original
0: thank you for listening for more information about the royal academy please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk